0: How many people thought that it would take 17 weeks to go through five chapters? Anybody? Matt, well you know me. Well, I don't know if it's the fact that you know me. I've listened to your teaching too and you you can get deep. You can spend some time on some verses. No, you really can. That uh, Eden series that we have online too, so if anybody has not listened to that and really look at the fact on what's happening in the Garden of Eden... With Adam and Eve and the planting and creation, I really encourage you to check out what Matt was teaching as far as that. It's on the Open Door website, on the Facebook page, YouTube, Rumble, everywhere else. Just look for the cool Eden side. What, what was it called again, Matt? What Eden? East, East of Eden. Yeah. So that was fascinating. So I know you can be, uh, long-winded is not the right word, but you can be very in-depth, relentless. So, but, uh. 17 weeks in five chapters. We are going to finish it this evening. For a way of review, let's look at what's been happening somewhat surrounding the passage we're going to be in this evening. As you can tell on the screen here that James was telling them in chapter 4 to not war with each other. James just got done telling these Christians that you can be an adulterer uh, towards God, that being a friend with the world is placing yourself at enmity with God. There's no doubt that he's writing to Christian believers because in James chapter 2, verse number 7, he reveals the fact of, do they not blaspheme the worthy name by which you are called? Obviously, pointing to and alluding to Acts 11:26, 26, talking about where the Christians were first called uh, Christians at Antioch. Then also in James chapter 1, I believe it's in verse number 18, where he talks about they were begotten of God. They were saved, let alone the fact that 15 times the word brethren is used in five chapters and three times the word beloved brethren is used in the book of James as well. There's no doubt that James is writing to Christians, and I would just encourage anybody, whether they're listening online or here, to go ahead and look at the first two teachings of this book, where we go over the in-depth overview in the culture and the audience and the author of this letter because that information is very vital to understand why he's writing what he's writing and how to accurately understand it so like i said in james chapter 4 we've learned that christians can be at enmity with god and james writes it pretty clearly here james also tells them they need to stop envying that they should not speak evil of one another Uh, He was talking about don't boast in your plans. Life is merely a vapor. It's here one minute and gone the next. Too many people are living for this life and not looking for the next. And so he says, don't boast in that. Be patient in trials, which is the section that we just left off of. And in the midst of that, don't grudge against one another. Endure the trials, endure the struggle, but don't be grudging against each other. Then he says, endure it. This is really where we left off last week. He said, behold, in verse number 11, we count them happy, which endure. You have heard of the patience of Job and have seen the end of the Lord, that the Lord is very pitiful and of tender mercy. So his encouragement at but this point is be patient. There's a lot going on. You guys are struggling. I know just because you name the name of Christ, it's bringing persecution in your life. You're losing your jobs. You were part of this dispersion, he says, in James chapter 1, the tribes that are scattered abroad. They've lost almost everything just for identifying with Jesus Christ. Near the end of the letter, this is where he says, just endure, just have patience. Christ is coming back. And that's a message you and I need today. Unfortunately, there's some theologies that teach that you have to endure to prove that you're a Christian. And that's very foreign to scripture, Matthew chapter 24 in the Olivet Discourse, he who endures to the end shall be saved is not talking about salvation in a spiritual sense. It's talking about physical salvation at the end of the tribulation period and at the judgment of AD 70 of Jerusalem. And so the endurance aspect is what we are doing while we are waiting on Christ to return. To endure in faith and just trusting in Him. Not to be saved, but to have an active faith while we're struggling. And we're going to get to that here in a little while. So we're going to be in James chapter 5, verses 12 through 20 for tonight. But before we get into there, I want to ask questions. Let's do some brain exercise. In the Bible, who do you know have made a promise, a vow, or an oath only to later regret it. Okay, Judges chapter 11, yep. Jephthah, yep. What happened with him? Yeah. Yep. There's interesting discussion, right, on whether she was just a perpetual virgin and given to the temple in service or whether she was actually sacrificed. Uh, we actually have a video on that and looking at both sides and what most likely is the explanation, but Jeff does one of them in Judges 11. Anybody else, any remembrance of somebody in the Bible that made a promise, oath, or a vow only to later regret it? Esau with his birthright is one, right? And so he was starving and sold his birthright. And sold it to Jacob. There you go. That's one that I didn't personally have on the list, but definitely. Anybody else? Hmm. Mm. Nope. So there's that account in First Samuel chapter number 14 where Jonathan said not to eat and Jonathan had some of that honey and then Jonathan asked, what am I to die now because I've done this? So there's one, Will. How so? Nazarite, vow? Okay, there could be one. Yep, didn't think of that one. You're right. Anybody that's not a good Bible person somebody that may be an antagonist that later regretted it that you think of Yeah King Herod how so <laughs> There is one and it does say that he was he was distraught over over that in in uh John the Baptist you know There's one There's one other that I thought of that wasn't necessarily an enemy to Israel but it's in the book of Daniel Remember huh so Darius, King Darius had made a decree, and uh, what was that decree again? I, I, the what? That's right. Yep, it was uh, no one can pray other than to their god. And Daniel was found praying towards Jerusalem with his windows open too. And he said anybody caught praying would be cast into the den of lions. And so when Darius found out, and, and they, entra- they trapped you know, Daniel, if you will, uh, Darius, he had no choice but to follow through with his decree, his vow. And we know what happened with Daniel and the fact that the Lord provided, and, and uh, Darius, the next day, there were a bunch of other people instead, and Daniel came out unscathed. And so there's a few people that I was thinking of as far as making promises and, and oaths and vows And later on regretting it. So in verse number 12, James writes, but above all things, remember we just got done talking about endurance, persevering, don't grudge. It says, my brethren, swear not, neither by heaven, neither by earth, neither by any other oath, but let your yea be yea and your nay be nay, lest you fall into condemnation. I have a question. Why do people make promises Think about it in the past. Why did you make a promise? I've made pre- plenty of promises. And I'm sure everybody in here has made a promise about something. Why do you think we make promises instead of just giving our word? Why do you think that is? To show that we're dedicated, that this sort of committed. Okay. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. anybody else? Okay. Sort of like marriage vows, if you will, is what you're saying. Okay. anybody else? Yeah. To gain trust with someone. What do you mean? Hmm. Yeah. Right. Okay. Right. Okay. Do you think that making a promise to somebody is really you trying to prove to that person that you're faithful of your word? Do you think there's a measure of that as well a bit? You see, it's interesting, you know, here James writes, it says, swear not, neither by heaven or earth, neither by any other oath, like let your yes be yes and your no be no. You know, it's this concept of why do we have to make promises? Can't we just, for a lack of better word, you know, when we had our men's forge and we talked about manly things, it's like, for lack of better words, can't we not just be a man of our word, you know? It, to me, it seems like when we make a promise, it's like we're trying to convince the other person, hey, I'm going to follow through. But then what happens when we don't follow through? What do you think that does to the relationship? A little bit of level of trust, yeah. Does it affect you at all if you like break a promise? I I, I used to make promises with kids, uh, my children, when they were little. And then I realized (laughs) I need to stop doing that because I'm not fulfilling half the promises I'm making with my kids. And now they're like, oh, I can't trust dad anymore type deal. And it's like here, James is saying, just let your yes be yes and your no be no. Have you ever heard this before out of the book of James? Does this sound familiar from anywhere else? James essentially is just quoting what Messiah said back in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter five. Here Jesus says, but I say unto you, swear not at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, neither by earth, for it is his footstool, neither by Jerusalem, for it's the city of the great king. Neither shall thou swear by thy head, because thou canst make one hair white or black. So Jesus is actually uh, speaking this on the Sermon on the Mount, and James essentially is quoting Jesus here. And so, again, if this letter of James was written somewhere around A.D., between A.D. 50, A.D. 60, it could be as early as 48, around the Jerusalem Council, these Christians would have known the Sermon on the Mount, I imagine, because word travels. But... I want you to see something because if you remember the Talmud, the Talmud is actually basically a written document that sort of explains how the Jewish people are to keep the oral law. The oral law is basically things that God says but doesn't prescribe or describe how to fulfill it. Like for instance, remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. God really doesn't go into a whole lot of detail to say, how do we do that? And so they created the oral law to say, okay, this is how we do this. And based off that, they have created what's known as the Talmud, and basically it's made of two parts. You have your Mishnah and your Gemara. And your Mishnah is the prescribed uh, information as far as how to fulfill that oral law. And then your Gemara is actually the rabbinic commentary on it. You'll see different rabbis commenting on different personal opinions regarding it. Well, in a particular part, when when it's called it, it's the tractate shavuot. Tractate is sort of like a chapter, if you will. When it's talking about vows, here in Mishnah chapter six, it says, which is false swearing? So he's talking about if you swear that you've done something. He says, if one swears that something is different from what it's known to be, uh, sort of like a stone of column is actually gold, or that, hey, I saw a man, but it was actually a woman, or that, hey, I saw a woman, but it was actually a man. If you've done any of that, It is false swearing because you promised, you vowed, you swore that you saw something. And if you were found doing it, uh, you know, by guilt intentionally, like it says here, then it's punishable by stripes. Now this isn't according to the Torah, the Old Testament. This is according to the Talmud, which was written by the Jewish people. The reason why I wanna bring this up is because in the day of Jesus, while the Talmud is written I think the earliest one is 200 AD. These oral laws have still been around during the days of Jesus and prior to. This is why, if you read in the epistles and I believe in the gospels, you'll read what Jesus calls traditions of men or traditions of elders. Me, he's really referring back to this oral law that they're prescribing. They're making it ultra legalistic, they're trying to go ahead and, and just put people in bondage. In here and here he's saying, if you're caught lying intentionally, or swearing you saw something and you actually didn't, then it's punishable if you've done it intentionally with stripes. But if you thought you saw, whatever, but you really didn't, then there's no harm, no foul there. In the Torah, the only aspect we get of swearing and making vows is in Numbers chapter 30, Leviticus chapter 27, in a small section in Deuteronomy, I think 23. And all we really read in the Torah is if somebody makes a promise... And if they cannot fulfill the promise, they have to make restitution. They have to bring an offering, a sacrifice. They have to pay back that broken promise. But here the religious leaders, they have established, you know, stripes being whipped, stuff like that. But I wanted to point this out because in Jesus' day, this was still going on. This was part of the teaching. And that's why he's saying by heaven or earth. Because what had happened was these religious leaders they were trying to make a loophole when i'm studying orthodox judaism this past week by saying i swear by heaven or i swear by earth because they're not invoking the name of god or not they're not invoking a substitute name of god they feel like they can get away with making a promise and not have really fulfilling it so in essence sort of saying making you have credibility like you're going to fulfill the promise but really you have Very little intention. You'll try, but you're trying to give yourself credibility. So instead of swearing by God, now you're swearing by heaven or earth because, hey, you're not saying God and you're not taking the Lord's name in vain and therefore you don't have to have these stripes and you don't have to pay restitution. They were trying to create this loophole. And Jesus is the one that says, don't swear at all. Don't swear by God. Don't even swear by heaven. Don't swear by earth at all. You see, another loophole Orthodox Jews would develop is a term known as Bli Nader. So if you were to say Bli Nader, you just said a Jewish word term. Basically, this means without vow, without promise. And what the Orthodox Jews would teach within Judaism Judaism is in the fact, before you make a promise to somebody, if you say Bli Nader, then in essence, Though you make a promise, that bleed and a dare phrase gets you acquitted from not fulfilling it. So they're creating a loophole to say, hey, as long as you say this phrase before you promise, then if you break your promise, eh, no harm, no foul. But they go on to say that if you make the promise, but then you backtrack and you want to say bleed and a dare to go ahead and cover your track. Well, you already made the promise, so that term doesn't help you anymore, so you're still obligated to fulfill it. So again, as we see in the New Testament, we see in the Gospels, many times religious leaders try to keep having loophole after loophole, or religious leaders are trying to just have a lot more legalist legalism within their church. And so it's a pretty interesting aspect. But like I said, Jesus says, and James repeats Jesus, he says, don't swear, Don't swear by God, don't swear by his throne, don't swear by heaven or earth or Jerusalem. He says, don't even swear by your own self because you can't change anything about yourself. He says, just let your yes be yes and your no be no. Similar phraseology on the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says, for whatever more comes of this, comes of evil. In other words, there's two things, two ways this could be understood. Is number one is the fact that it could be seen because cometh of evil is often used as the evil one. In other words, the adversary or who we would know as Satan or Lucifer. Also, by going ahead and making a promise, really not even believing you're going to fulfill it, is having evil intentions, evil motives. You know, you're like, hey, I just want to build up my trust in this person so I can, you know, gain them. And then if I just don't follow through, eh, I'll try to figure it out and, and make up the friendship later. So, but Jesus is the one that's saying, don't make any of these promises. Just be a person of character and say, yes, I will do it. Or no, I will not do it. And not to make promises. What's interesting is when I was studying all this, And I was coming to the aspect of, okay, Jewish people, Orthodox Judaism, how do they deal with this? What does this say in the Talmud? There is a comment on one of the articles that I just thought was very interesting. When it goes uh, talking about making vows, he says there's hubris involved in making vows. In other words, there's a, a sense of arrogance, if you will, in making vows. It presumes the ability to predict the future with regard to the object of the vow, Everyone knows from experience that despite our best efforts, we don't control every aspect of our lives. How, then, can anyone vow to do anything? The only possible excuse is doing so as a motivational tool. And that's actually his username or whatever, blah, blah, you know, back from 2015. And so I thought that was pretty powerful right there. You know, if if we know that life is a vapor, if we know James just got done saying Take no, or Jesus talks about take no thought for tomorrow, but James says, you know, when you're making plans, you, you know not what shall be on the morrow, for what is your life? For you ought to say, if the Lord will, we don't know what tomorrow holds. So if I were to promise anybody right now that I'm gonna do something next week, there's an air of pridefulness in the fact that I know that I will even be here to fulfill that promise. And why should I have to build my character, try to prove my character to somebody, as opposed to just being a person of my word, you know? By breaking promises and breaking vows and breaking oaths, that's how we start diminishing the relationships, the friendships, and the trustworthiness goes away, and things like that. See, James takes the ending, instead of the cometh of evil, he says, let your ABA, be a, your nay be nay, lest ye fall into condemnation, is what he says, condemnation. A lot of times when people read the word condemnation, they automatically think condemned to hell. That's not what condemnation necessarily means. Condemnation most often is from the Greek word krino. And basically it just means judgment. Well, actually here in the book of James in verse number 12, it's a different word for condemnation. It's not that same word for judgment. This word is also used for hypocrisy in the New Testament. And so there could be one of two things James is referring to. Number one, he could be talking about the fact that if you're going to make these promises, you're not following through, you're going to come into judgment. Number one, you swore, you don't know the future. If you swore by God, guess what? You just took his name in vain. Now you're going to be judged. You know, you're going to give an account for that. You're still saved as a Christian. You're not going to lose your salvation, but every single Christian is going to stand before the beam of seat. James talked about that in James chapter two in the first half as well. So there's one aspect that if we're breaking our promises, then we could give an account for that. There's another aspect of it where if you take the original Greek word here in verse number 12, according to the received text, it's the fact that you will be considered and seen as a hypocrite. Your hypocrisy, that's gonna be evident and that's gonna destroy the relationship. And so James is essentially telling them that when we're breaking our promises, it's going to lead to either judgment or it's going to lead to uh, a loss of character traits in in relationship with the person. Now I want to get into the meat of tonight. Because this is what I was really excited about for tonight. This section right here. Because if you know anything about me, I don't go with the grain in traditional orthodox understanding and interpretation. How I interpret and study scripture is, I personally study it contextually first I will read the English I will read the passage read it in its entire book context see what I believe it really means then you can look at the original language to see what the words are and how it's used and what parts of speech then I will come to my own understanding of the passage only then will I ever consider consulting a commentary or someone else because I don't want to have a presupposition and an influence But the reason why I wanna consult a commentary is because I'm not the smartest guy out there. There's a lot of people smarter than me. But I wanna see if if I look at 10 commentaries and not a single one says the same thing I say, (laughs) I might be off and I wanna go ahead and figure out where I'm off. But maybe there's a couple that agree. And this is one where I went against the grain of orthodox understanding, and I think tonight I wanna prove it. And there's a couple of well-respected people, uh, theologians that have the same view. Let's read 13 through 18. James writes, Is any among you afflicted? Let him pray. Is any merry? Let him sing psalms. Is any sick among you? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray for him. Anoint him with the oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith shall save the sick. And the Lord shall raise him up. And if he have committed sins, they shall be forgiven him. Confess your faults one to another and pray one for another that you may be healed. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Elias, Elijah was a man subject to like passions as we are, and he prayed earnestly that it might not rain, and it rained not on the earth by the space of three years and six months. And he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth brought forth her fruit. Well, in this passage, there's a lot of verses. Normally, we don't cover this many verses at once, but uh, I felt like the, it all ties together. So, what is James saying? He says, "Okay, if you are afflicted," it says in verse 13, "If you are afflicted, if you're struggling, if you're suffering, pray." I mean, we've seen this concept in James chapter one, where it says in verse number five, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God. That wisdom that James says to pray about is not just general wisdom. God, give me wisdom and discernment. We have to remember, he's talking about struggling. He's talking about trials of life. That wisdom there is God, how do I apply your principles in my struggles right now? It's trying to find godly wisdom in the fire. And so this is why, if you are afflicted, if you are suffering, pray. If you are Mary, let them sing psalms. Yes, singing psalms is a very biblical thing. When you were to go to the book of psalms, you will read uh, near the middle of the book of psalms, I think it is, you'll have the psalms of ascent. And those are the specific psalms that the Jewish people would read during ceremonial processes uh, before they actually enter that last gate, I think was maybe the golden gate, to get to the actual holy of holies apart. And so sing psalms. I don't know if you've ever heard me sing up here in congregational singing, but I hope not because I do not have a voice like Taylor, Hunter, Matt, anybody else in here. But isn't that something therapeutic? You know, where you're happy, you know, singing songs. Just Songs is just a way to really connect with your soul, with your being, but it's an aspect of, We gotta sing the right songs. We gotta really know what we're singing. And I would argue the songs that we should be singing are the songs that bring your closest to God. You know, songs that give us praise and thanks. One of the songs that I recently came across is by a group known as uh, I Am They. Anybody heard of that group? And they have a song called Gratitude. You you heard that song at all? No? Okay, I'd encourage you to check it out. I Am They, it's called Gratitude. And uh powerful song just talking about being having gratitude towards god for everything that he's done he says what can i give you i can't give you anything all i can give you is a song you know give you my praise and so if we're happy like pastor ken says and other people say show your face, tell your face you know sing be rejoicing in that but then he says here okay if you're sick call for the elders of the church okay So if I'm sick, call for the elders of the church. You magically hear That's no word of faith stuff, right? And so the question is, what is meant by sick? There's a lot of sick people in the church. You know, I, I know we have some families that weren't here this morning because of sickness, people that aren't here tonight because of sickness. And so what does James mean here by sick? If you are sick, call for the elders of the church so that they can pray over you and anointing you with oil. I'm just curious, what do you think? Or what have you heard as far as this passage is concerned? Anybody? Okay. Okay. Okay, right. So, sort of like a corporate aspect of prayer and coming together corporately as one body. Definitely, I can see that. But what is meant by sick? We have some sick people, you know, at home tonight. Is that what James means? They're sick. We got oils, right? And so it's, you know, part, part of it is, is you'll get some denominations that they will take this particular verse and passage and say, if you are sick, call the church body over, the leaders of the church, they'll anoint you with oil, and then they'll go ahead, pray over you, and then you will be healed by faith. Your sickness will go away. Now, I believe in Miracles. I believe that God can definitely heal people with his prerogative on his time according to his sovereign will. I definitely believe that. But is that what James is saying here? I don't think that's what James is saying here. That if you're just sick and you're struggling with a sickness per se, that there's this magic formula that you get elders over and then you will be, it doesn't say you may. It says right here, the prayer of the faith shall verse number 15, shall save the sick. There is no wiggle room. Whatever is sick, this prayer will save them. Absolutely every time according to scripture. What does James mean by sick? That's what we got to understand. Sometimes we will hear this, and this is the most important, popular, predominant view of this passage, that when James is saying for the sick person to call for the elders, to anoint, and to pray with them, that the sickness is really God's discipline upon them, all right? Now, now I've, I've heard this, I've read this, there's a lot of people that have this view as well. If we were to look in 1 Corinthians, matter of fact, I'll turn there real quick, 1 Corinthians, Chapter number 11, verses 29 and 30, and you're talking about the Lord's Supper, he says, Paul writes, for he that eateth and drinketh unworthily eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this cause, many are weak and sickly among you and many sleep. In other words, during this transitional period between the cross and the church, that there were some people, I'm not gonna say, like but similar to Sapphira ananias whom god had struck dead for lying about the property and stuff like that that there were some people paul says took communion lord's supper unworthily they trampled on the blood of christ and i believe what paul is saying is they got judged for it during that time they got judged i believe that is a biblical principle that as a christian we can bring God's discipline in our lives. And sometimes that discipline is in form of a malady. That I do believe is a biblical principle. We see it in 1 John chapter number five, where John writes about the sin unto death. But I do not pray that you should ha- you know ask for that. And so I do believe that the apostle John talks about there's a sin that a Christian can commit that... As opposed to getting drunk, drunk driver, getting hit in a car. Yes, okay, that's a sin that could cause you to physically die. But I do personally believe that there may be times where God will bring somebody home based on his prerogative because they're doing so much damage for the kingdom of God and living so flippantly that God's just going to bring them home. I do believe that's a biblical principle. That is most often how this passage is understood. But is that what James is talking about? Is that what James is writing about? You see, I don't believe that's what James is writing about in this letter. I believe the principle is accurate. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Acts chapter 5, you got 1 John chapter 5. I do believe the principle is accurate. But is that what James is talking about? Some people ask me, why does it matter? I mean, it's a biblical principle. Right, but... James wrote this letter to a specific group of people for a specific purpose. So we would do well to figure out what is that purpose? What does James mean? You hate to be misunderstood, right? Misquoted. So if you mean something and just because other people have this understanding, but you mean it differently because everybody over here believes this, they're going to assume you mean this and they're going to take it and run. That's not doing you justice, right? They're just misunderstanding you. We've got to understand what James is talking about. What is meant by sick? Well, the Greek word for sick is asthenio. It's used 19 times in the epistles. In the epistles, not talking about the gospels, but all these epistles, <coughs> these letters. Out of the 19 times, only three times is it used literally. Three times it's used literally of a actual sickness. Like they're sick in bed, sick near death, things like that. The other 16 times it's used figuratively, like being weak in the faith. Just having a weak sensibility, if you will, a weak conscience. It is a figurative sense, not a literal sense. Unfortunately, just because a lot of people will say, okay, you have 16 here, three here, so we're just going to go with the popular opinion and assume based on the 16 times it's used, that that's what James means. We can't really do that. We have to be fair to figure it out because he may be in one of those three literal categories on how it's used. So we have to do some investigating in the context to say, is James talking about a literal sickness due to discipline or is James using this figuratively? And I think the context will shed light. We're gonna say something, Well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. mm-hmm. Right. And Paul was praying three times for the thorn in the flesh, and that's where he says, you know, in my weakness I'll I'll be strong. And so you're totally right there. So w- with the Orthodox understanding of this being, hey, they're they're sick. They have sin in their life, they need to call the elders, how the elders anoint them, how the elders pray for them, and then he'll be restored into a right fellowship with God. I think context argues against that. You see, these are the four main things we see in this passage. The elders pray and anoint, the prayer of faith will save the sick, the Lord shall or will raise them up, and then in the fourth part, if he committed sins, they will be forgiven. So, here we say in verse 14, if anybody is sick, then he says the prayer of faith will save the sick. Again, the English doesn't draw it out nearly as clear. This sick here is a totally different Greek word. It is not the same Greek word as sick in verse 14. This Greek word for sick is a synonym For being weary, for being exhausted, just about to faint because you're just emotionally, internally, you're just, you're just done. You're discouraged, you're beat down, you're ready to throw in the towel, raise the white flag, you're just, you're done. That's what this second word sick means in verse number 15. It says the prayer of faith will save the weary, will save the faint. Will save the sick. Then, this other aspect, he says, if he committed sins, they will be forgiven. Now, wait a minute. According to Chuck Smith, this sickness is most likely because they have committed sins, and so they're bringing God's discipline on their life. So, why did James bring up a hypothetical if? If they're sick because God's disciplining them over sin, James wouldn't have said, if he committed sin, they'll be forgiven. James would have said, the sins he committed will be forgiven, if it's because of sin and discipline. So the hypothetical there points to the fact that there's no guarantee, there's no clear evidence that this sick right here that's among you is God's discipline in your life. There's no evidence there contextually so far. Mm-hmm. Yep. 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 Just like the man born blind, you know, which is his parents did this, you know, and so the sins of the parents go into the generations, or like I said, the poor, uh, the those with maladies, you know, judgment of God. <laughs> that is true. Yep. That is true. It's so exactly just like that. But when we're looking at the prayer of faith shall save the sick, again, when we first started talking about sort of like word of faith, there's no room for ambiguity here. James doesn't say the prayer of faith might save or may save or should save or could save, huh? If you have enough faith. That's not, James says the prayer of faith shall, will save the sick. There's no question about it. So it can't be the word of faith movement because like Will was talking about, even Paul. I imagine Paul prayed in faith. I imagine Paul had other people praying for him. And guess what? it seemed to be the Lord's will for him to carry a thorn in his flesh. So this can't mean that if you're sick and and physically whatever, that God will save you with the prayer of faith. No, 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 Contrary. The other aspect of it is save. Every time we see the word save, we think save from hell, save from hell. Save just means delivered or rescued. And so I'll explain what I believe this is actually talking about. But he does say the prayer is safe, will deliver, will rescue the sick person. Then he says the Lord shall, will raise him up. So there's a couple absolutes in here. The prayer will save the sick, Lord will raise them up, but then there's a hypothetical, if he committed sins. Like I said, it's not a question on whether or not a Christian can bring God's discipline in their life, and God could bring sickness to discipline a Christian. I believe that's a biblical principle. 1 Corinthians 11, Acts chapter 5, 1 John chapter 5, But i don't believe that's what james is talking about i want to read you a couple quotes from people much smarter than me and i want to let them summarize what at least the three of us believe james is talking about the prayer of the faith will save the sick first is going to be dr robert dean he's got a lot but there's a lot of good in in here he says looking at the last part of that verse we realize that, we may, that maybe, we are, maybe we are talking about something different from physical sickness. Because as soon as we introduced the concept of sin, we realized that what had happened was that this person had been converting the outside pressure of adversity to the inside pressure of stress in the soul. Their soul is fragmenting. It is compounding itself. I don't know what that word is, but if they're a double-minded believer, unstable in their ways, and they have reached a point where they are incapable of going forward, they're overwhelmed by depression, by discouragement, by failure. And so this is God giving God's solution here and is related to the use of the faith rest drill specifically manifested in prayer. The emphasis is that Elijah prayed and God answered his prayer. And just as Elijah prayed, we can pray in times of adversity and God will answer our prayers. Elijah was facing a time of adversity and testing in Israel. The interesting thing is that if the subject of verses 13 through 16 is talking about physical healing, then why is it that James went to the first half of first Kings for his illustration and not the second half where he was staying with the widow of Zarephath and had a young son who... Who died? Elijah was told to lie down over that son and God restored him to life. So if the subject was healing, why doesn't James go to 1 Kings 17, 18? Because it's not talking about physical healing. He is talking about physical endurance in the time of crisis. One other person is by John Walford. There is no reason to consider the sick as referring exclusively to physical illness. The word astenei literally means to be weak. James was not referring to the bedfast, diseased, or the ill. Instead, he wrote to those who had grown weary, who had become weak both morally and spiritually in the midst of suffering. These are the ones who should call for the help of the elders of the church. This is who I believe James is talking about. Who are the sick? These are the people that have lived under intense persecution, intense suffering, intense trials, that they're just so beat down. They're so discouraged, sick. In other words, weary, faint, according to other passages that that Greek word is used. They just don't have another ounce left in them. That's where he says, if you are like that in your trials, call for the elders of the church. Call for leaders in the church, good mature Christians to pray for you. They will pray for you. The anointing of oil is symbolic. It's an Old Testament symbolism of the Holy Spirit and other aspects of it. And if somebody wanted to be anointed with oil, I'd have no personal problem with it as long as they understand that the healing doesn't come from the oil, but the person, uh, uh, but God. So when we're looking at this, and they're going through all these struggles, all these trials, contextually, this makes sense. Again, I've had this question, why does it even matter? Everybody that studies scripture should care to find out what James means when we're reading James's letter. You don't want to be misunderstood or misquoted. I'm sure James doesn't either. And if this is the word of God, and it's powerful, sharper than two-edged sword, then we would do well to rightly divide the word of God. And in that we can't just assume what sick means based on other situations and principles, but to find out what James actually means. And like I had said, a figurative understanding sheds light onto the context. The believers were struggling under the weight and pressure of an antagonistic society. They were spiritually and emotionally drained. James gives them the remedy. Seek prayer from others, confess to God who will restore their soul. This makes me think of Psalm 23, the great shepherd. When you're just, you're spent. Going through the valley of the shadow of death, what I will not fear any evil. For thy rod, thy staff, they comfort me. And this is what James is talking about. Then we get to verses 19 and 20. 19 and 20, James says, Brethren, if any of you do err from the truth, and one of you convert him, let him know that he which converteth the sinner from the error of his way shall save a soul from death and shall hide a multitude of sins. And this is sort of how James ends this letter. According to James here, he says, Brethren, James is writing to believers. James says, if any of you do err from the truth, stray from the truth. So guess what? Contrary to my Calvinist friends, a Christian can stray from the truth of the Word of God. They can go prodigal. Must we go back to James 4, 4, where James calls them all adulterers and adulteresses? You are enmity with God. You are opposition and adversary with God. James says, if you do so, there's a possibility that people can be deceived and duped and led astray. That's why you gotta stay in the word of God. You gotta stop listening to philosophy and start just reading scripture literally. He says, if any of you do err and one of you convert him, then you just saved a soul from death and hid a multitude of sins. What does this mean? Okay, so epistrepho means to cause back or return from error. You see somebody, they they're get stuck in some bad theology. You're like, you want, you want to meet up for coffee? Let, let's talk. I, I've heard you say some of these things, and, and now it seems like you're full fledged believing this particular theology or whatever. You think the prayer of faith is, is a word of faith, and man, that's dangerous. Well, they're straying away to this bad theology. So you try to minister through them, disciple them, teach them, and you bring them back. You get them away from that bad theology. He says, guess what? You just saved a soul from death. Now, what does this mean? Again, save, heaven, hell, right? Death, hell. That's not what James is talking about here. This word death, thanatos, is actually found in James 1.15 and is talking about when lust conceives, it's bring forth death. If you were to take this Greek word and look into the Septuagint, which is the Greek version of the Old Testament, you will find this Greek word is first used in Genesis chapter 2. And in Genesis chapter 2, it's when Eve is told that you will surely die. It says, oh, you you won't die. You know, your eyes will be open, right? So we know that they didn't physically die right then and there, but that death brought separation, that broken relationship, that broken fellowship from God. And so what James is saying here is the fact that You've converted somebody. You brought them back from the error. You saved them from a broken, estranged fellowship with God. And this is where we've talked about James or Genesis 2. Sin, when finished, destroys the fellowship, brings consequences, and it can bring physical death. This death here in James, and even in Genesis 2, has nothing to do with spiritual death, lack of eternal life, but the destroying power of consequences and sin. When we were talking about James one fifteen this is how we understood thanatos when we were talking about lust conceived brings forth death in its first use in genesis two seventeen, and so what we're seeing is if we see somebody in bad theology we pull them back we can save them deliver them from that broken fellowship with god because now they're believing bad stuff that drives a wedge between them and god and in doing that we can hide a multitude of sin we can cover We can go ahead and and allow them to confess and, you know, confess one another. And we can make sure that they're not committing more sins after that by continuously following this bad philosophy, this bad theology, and doing more damage by converting other people into that bad teaching. In essence, leading a prodigal back to God saves a person from broken fellowship with God and covers and prevents more sins towards God. And that's discipleship in the midst of the dispersion that they're going through. That's how James finishes this. To me, James finishes this book with an encouragement of discipleship. In discipleship in the time where it's hardest for us to disciple when you and I are struggling in our faith. And when you and I are struggling in our faith, that's the time we need each other the most help lift each other up. So when we look at the entirety of the book of James, the entire letter is written to Jewish Christians, going through adversity, struggling to maintain and live an active faith. James sums everything up in this last section by reminding people, if you're struggling, discouraged, backbiting, you need to pray a prayer of faith with others, confess sins and receive the rejuvenation that comes with a right relationship, fellowship with God. By abiding in Christ, Goes back to John chapter 15, Abide in the Vine. That is what James is about. James is about confession, forgiveness, and abiding. The title of this entire series, How do we live in active faith in the midst of trials and temptations? By getting right with God and abiding in fellowship with Jesus Christ. And as we saw in these last two verses. A lot of that happens through discipleship. And so that's how we would end the book of James is no matter what you're going through, please don't ever negate, neglect the fact that we still need to be discipleship makers. We still need to disciple one another. We still need to encourage one another. The book of Hebrews says, not forsaking assembly as, as some do, but gathering even more as we see the day approaching. You see what's, I mean, I know we don't have our heads buried under the pillow. We see what's going on in the world and in the culture. This is where we need each other the most. When we're struggling. So when James is writing his letter and telling these Christians, stop doing this, stop doing that. A faith without works is dead. You're not living your faith. You need to have an active faith. Your faith is useless to those around you. If you're not having works and love, it all goes back to discipleship. And so, I'd encourage all of us, if we're struggling, if we're the sick, but we're just so worn down, beat up, and discouraged, and we just can't take another day, reach out, call somebody, I'm struggling, can you come pray with me? Jesus Christ, James promises that Jesus Christ will deliver you from that and will restore you. Forgive all the sins that may have committed at that time as well. And so that's what an act of faith looks like in the midst of trials. So with that, I just close word of prayer. I appreciate, you know, most all of y'all are here all 17 weeks. And so uh, next two growth group classes are going to be Christmas Christmas apologetics on the 10th and the 17th. We're going to be doing a combined class here. We're going to be up on the platform. So we'll be able to sit in the pews. And then we'll just be praying about, uh, as far as January comes, where are we going to take growth groups from there? And so if you have any thoughts and ideas, I know we brought it up before, let me know. And otherwise, we will see what January brings. So with that, I'd love to close with a word of prayer. And then we will see everybody, uh, not this Wednesday, but Sunday. And everybody have a great Thanksgiving. So God, we thank you again for this evening and for the preservation of Scripture and I thank you for the encouragement that you've had James written, that in the midst of our struggles and our trials, that we need to rally around one another to help build each other up, to confess, and so you can restore us when we are downtrodden and weak and and fainting in our spirit. So Lord, I thank you for the promise, and Lord, just equip us to abide in your presence, and just to have people around us that we love, and they love us so much that they can just help lift us up as well. Thank you and we love you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.